Hi kids, I'm Kendall Vanderslice, and welcome to, uh, I'm Kendall Vanderslice, and welcome to, Kate, what are you doing? What is this thing? It's a brand new Yeti premium multi-pattern USB microphone with blue voice technology, Kendall. Wow, you must be pretty happy to have such a fancy new microphone. Yeah, I mean, there's just one more thing I really need to be happy. That's a new episode of Veggie Takes. Welcome to Veggie Takes, everyone. I'm Kendall Vanderslice. I'm Kate Watson, and today we're re-watching Madame Blueberry. This episode, loosely based off the French novel Madame Bovary, was released in 1998. It also happens to be the episode I remember best because it's the only episode my family had on VHS, and we watched it so many times. You know, as I was watching this, I was thinking, comparing it to last week's episode that came out in 1993, and in the five years that it elapsed... We're in a completely different place in terms of the VeggieTales universe. VeggieTales has taken off a little bit. They've released their first Silly Song special VHS tape. And they're really on a roll here in terms of people getting excited about their product. So it's interesting that now is the time they chose to take a risk and make this literary adaptation, which I think is the first time they completely went off script and did something that doesn't include a Bible story in any way. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I this is kind of the thing that most sticks in my memory is one that's like, just not Bible related. And um, I, yeah, I find that really interesting, the ways that they sort of pull in these moral and ethical questions, um, but going a whole different, a whole different direction. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to recap the episode a bit? Sure. In this episode, Madame Blueberry lives a sad, lonely life in a treehouse. She gazes at photographs of things that she wants, and even as her butlers, Bob and Larry, do their best to rally her spirits, she can't shake the feeling that she's lacking something, that she's missing out. So three scallions sell her on the idea that she can buy her way to happiness at the brand new Stuff Mart in town. So Madame Blueberry heads over to Stuff Mart and apparently, with limitless funds at her disposal, fills cart after cart with all her heart desires. The scallions then sell her on free delivery, and the carts begin to unload at her treehouse while she's still shopping. Madame Blueberry has two separate encounters with young children who seem appreciative and grateful for what they have, as opposed to driven by this lust for stuff. She decides she would like to be like them instead, but not before her treehouse, filled to the brim with deliveries, (laughs) topples over. Having lost her home but gained a new perspective, Madame Blueberry at last is satisfied. So, Kate, what did you think of this episode? Oh, I have so many thoughts. Okay, so first of all, the Madame Bovary novel by Gustave Flaubert, I believe I'm saying his name right. That was a novel that was basically a cautionary tale about female lust. (laughs) Mm. A, A woman who wanted things, a woman who wanted a bigger life, a more exciting life, but who also wasn't content with her partner who was sort of lackluster, her husband. And the novel was actually banned in France because it portrayed adultery and an adulterous relationship, and it was seen as sensational. So the fact that that, this banned book from France, is adapted by the VeggieTales team is in itself like 
kind of a funny place to start start thinking about it, I think. That is interesting. I mean, I guess we're also looking at some adaptations of some pretty dark Bible stories. So it's not (laughs) totally insane to take some really complicated stories um, and make them accessible for children. But it is, it does seem to be a very different thing to take a um, literary piece of fiction and adapt it rather than a Bible story and adapt it for kids. Yeah, I had to wonder why they decided to go in that direction and why they started with this one. And then what did you think of all the funny little French stereotypes that they threw in there? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. This is this is something we'll talk about at greater length in um, a future episode. But it is really interesting how they kind of develop characters by playing on different kinds of um, like nationalist stereotypes. Um, especially through the use of accents and the types of uh, vegetables they use. But yeah, I guess that was kind of their their biggest nod to this being a French novel. I don't know. What did you think? Um, yeah, when they, they have these little peas telling the story and they have these tiny heads and they're speaking in French accents. And then you even have uh, Junior Asparagus and his dad, they're wearing some sort of like striped linen suit that I imagine is a take on like what you would wear on the streets of Paris in summer. Um, it, it just kind of made me wonder like, all right, I understand. Is this maybe for the adults? Is this a lot of these nods to French culture supposed to make me laugh? Because I've got to say, I watched this with my kids. My kids were sick right now. Maybe this is why they completely fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> not interested in the fate of Madame Bover- uh, Blueberry at all. And even the silly song, as the silly song was going on, I was trying to like cue them with my own laughter. And they were looking at me like, there she goes again, mom, thinking something's funny when it's lame. I've got to be honest. I, when, you know, this was the only episode we had at home and I was pretty disappointed that the only episode we had didn't actually even have a silly song. It had a love song. Um, it, it I yeah, it, it never the slow ballad just didn't strike me as you know, it did it didn't catch my attention as a as a kid and the way that like rewatching it as an adult, I actually really loved it and thought it was hilarious. It is, it is so funny. Well, my kids didn't it's not their fault that they've never been to Taco Bell or Denny's. So <laughs> This is true. This is true. Maybe you should rectify that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did you wanna say anything about Madame Blueberry as a character herself, like the way that she's characterized, because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so I am really excited once we um, hop on with our guest this afternoon to have this conversation. But um, I just find it really interesting that they portrayed her as a blueberry, which is short and squat. Um, That, you know, Madame Blueberry is like her character is largely built through sort of the visualization of of her. And it made me think a lot of... um, Oh, goodness. What's the character's name in Willy Wonka that turns into a blueberry? Um, oh, I don't similarly, know. Yeah. Um, Veruca? Was, is it Veruca? Is that right? Um, who is just very, like, unsatisfied, again, with everything and um, kind of this this greed that she can't control. And ultimately, it literally turns her into a blueberry. Um, and that's a very similar portrayal as what's happening here. Um, but then the really ironic shift is that 
um, the first family that Madame Blueberry runs into that is really content um, is a family of, I think they're green beans. So they're very long and very lean. Um, and those are most of the other women in the episode. So you have this juxtaposition of the short squat Blueberry, who's very unhappy with life. And then you have the long, lean, poor beans that are very content in life. And um, I don't know, I, I, I'm... I think that these sort of depictions are doing a lot of work in communicating these personalities, but also it's kind of concerning to me uh, what's being communicated into that. And so, yeah, I'm excited to break that down a little bit further with our with our guest today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's almost like this episode of VeggieTales foretold the rise of Amazon a little bit in terms Ooh, of the stuff mart. Like she, you know, the scallions are selling Madame Blueberry, but not on this idea of a particular product or things she needs, but they're selling her her need to buy her lust for stuff. Is and sort the ability of like, for it to be at her house immediately. Yeah. And it can be delivered to your house immediately. I mean, there have been times that I have had so many Amazon products on my own doorstep that I have wondered if my own version of the treehouse was going to topple over. Um, and after I left this episode, I kind of wanted to like cone Marie a little bit. I actually felt like a little convicted. I said, wow, I really have a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really, when I looked at the stuff, Mart, I thought of Costco. And I have to be honest, I am a new Costco member, just new this year, and it's a game changer. Um, <laughs> it, you know, doesn't make a ton of sense for a single person to have a Costco membership because I'm not buying for like whole families. But I finally have a really big pantry, and so I can buy in bulk. And um, I went to Costco multiple times this weekend because I was reworking my patio, and uh, it was very helpful to get a lot of like outdoor fun things from there. Um, but as I walked through the aisles, it was really hard not to envision Madame Blueberry walking up and down Stuff Mart and thinking about like, oh, I could just also add this and this and this. And it's like, oh, well, it's all at a discount. So I may as well just add it to my sort of cart. Um, so I'm still a huge Costco fan, but I think I like the uh, Amazon depiction even better because it gives a much more sense of like urgency and even more like separation from stuff. Like as she's picking out stuff, um, it's not like it's very disconnected from reality. Like it's just sort of flying off the shelves into her cart. And she starts by like encountering these things in a catalog. Um, and so it's not like she's picking up the item and putting it in her cart and feeling how heavy it is and really getting a sense of like the full weight of what she's filling her house with. Yeah, totally. I mean, she starts out when she gets to the stuff market, getting the things that she had been sort of idealizing and the things that she really knew that she wanted. But then by the end of her trip there, she's just sort of like getting random things. And I actually I had no recollection of how the episode ended. I think I had I know I've seen it a few times, but maybe in like a disjointed way where I didn't watch it the whole way through a few times. Anyway, when she's at the end talking to Junior Asparagus and when she sees Junior Asparagus and his dad and she sees Junior accept that all he's getting is a bouncy ball and not this really cool train set, I thought we were going to have a moment where she buys the train set for Junior Asparagus. And then when it went in the opposite direction of like, well, Junior doesn't need the train set. I don't need to buy it for him. Maybe I don't need anything at all. I appreciated that. I thought that was like sort of like a cool misdirect. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's time for Silly Songs with Adam. Er, I'm sorry, we've had a slight mix-up with this episode. Um, okay, wait, Kate, do you want to introduce this time? 
And now it's time for Love Songs with Mr. Perez, here to review that ever-so-romantic ballad, The Cheeseburger Song. This week's silly song is not a silly song at all, but a love song with Mr. Lunt. After Larry's planned silly song for the episode was cut due to his prior issues with the Song of the Cebu, which we briefly mentioned in the last episode. The song is narrated by Mr. Lunt. Jerry is the main and only character and does a really bang-up job with conveying the delight, confusion, and, well, hunger uh, fitting to his story. His portrayal of a person sleeping in a car, also spot on. The song starts out with a really plausible narrative about love for cheeseburgers that, to be honest, I definitely share. After attempting to order his cheeseburger and milkshake and learning the establishment is closed, the song moves into a middle section where the energy is building and Jerry's deep and abiding commitment to wait for the cheeseburger is expressed. The section is the chorus of the song and accompanied by visuals of hearts and cheeseburgers floating around the screen, Jerry attempting to eat them as they disappear. But the narrative, believable as it starts out, moves into a wildly absurd and questionably appropriate territory toward the end. Allow me to revisit these lyrics for you. And I quote, And if the world suddenly ran out of cheese, he would get down on his hands and knees to see if someone accidentally dropped some cheese in the dirt, and he would wash it off for you, wipe it off for you, clean that dirty cheese off just for you. End quote. What? Evaluating this song uh, as a love song, there are certainly some red flags in the romance department. Musically, I can't really decide if this is just soft alt-rock, or it could be an Andrew Lloyd Webber-style musical, maybe? In any case, a few notes about the music theory here. The verse shifts from tonic through a secondary dominant chord to the submedian or minor sixth chord as Jerry wrestles with the news of Burger Bell being closed. The chorus enjoys a pretty straightforward tonic-dominant motion with a minor two chord for added color. The backing chorus is powerful and effective, making an appearance in the second half of the song as the intensity grows into the aforementioned absurdist dirt-cheese debacle, where Jerry expresses the extent of his devotion. In this final section of the song, it begins again into the sub-median harmony before modulating to the flat major three where it hangs out before tuning up to the major four chord where it ends. Really, the music on this song supports the lyric and narrative marvelously. I think the song's musical caliber is really evidenced by the fact that it was included on WOW 1999, an album that went double platinum by the year 2000, published in 1998. The song was featured between Big Tent Revival's What Would Jesus Do? and Nicole Nordeman's To Know You. I want to close my segment here revisiting one non-musical element of this whole uh, silly song, love song, fairy tale, where Jerry falls asleep in the drive-thru. Who does that? I mean, does he have the munchies? And What's with the surrealist fever dream of hearts and cheeseburgers? Anyway, he ends up sleeping in his car in the drive-thru line till the sun comes up, whereupon he sees an ad for discount eggs and bacon at Denny's, but promises to be back at Burger Bell for lunch to get his cheeseburger. Now here's the question. Why wasn't that establishment Burger Bell selling breakfast? 
Clear precedent had been set by that time, with McDonald's breakfasts already being served in the early 1970s. Burger King saw the croissant witch in the mid-1980s, one of my favorites. But, but, and I think this is what matters here, Taco Bell did not start offering breakfast until 2014. And as the unofficial sponsor of Late Night drive Through, I think we owe something about this song's content to Taco Bell's late arrival to the breakfast market. Ostensibly a song about the love for cheeseburgers, perhaps it's also a song that can remind us of the wisdom of Taco Bell's drive through hours. This has been Love Songs with Mr. Perez. Tune in next time to hear Mr. Perez break down the controversial summertime treat, the hot dog. Our guest today is Katherine Highsmith, a PhD candidate in American Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Catherine, also known as Casey, studies the intersection between food, gender, and the digital landscape. She's also a food photographer, recipe developer, and mom to two adorable children. I will be honest, if I were to have a photo display of my friend's kitchenalia to covet, it would be filled with photos of Casey's home. Thankfully, though, I don't need such a, <laughs> such a mantle because I can just scroll through her stunning Instagram, and you can too. You can follow her at Casey Highsmith. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Casey. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I am absolutely excited to talk about VeggieTales. <laughs> well, if you want to just jump right into it, Casey, did you actually grow up watching VeggieTales or is this your first run through with it? Um, no, I did grow up watching VeggieTales. I think I, I have to look at the dates again, but I'm pretty sure I was the target audience like when VeggieTales came out. Um, the like right age and everything. Um, I remember watching them. I, we didn't have a TV, so I'm not entirely sure how I watched them, but I, I did. I, I have, uh, I remember we might've also had like a, a, some kind of CD or a cassette of the, um, the songs as well. Um, Cause watching this episode for today, um, the, the things that triggered my memory the most were actually the random interjected songs. <laughs> Uh, there's one about like a cheeseburger, like you are his cheeseburger. And I just remember my brother and dad like belting these songs. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, but the songs are something that sticks in my brain a little bit more, which I think is the intention of Veggie Tales. I'm not sure. So <laughs> I actually think that the cheeseburger song was included in one of those. Um, wow. That's what I call worship mix CDs. It was like the <laughs> bonus song. I think of wow 1998 or 1999 this is the things that my brain is filled with instead of important things I remember that <laughs> so maybe that's where you guys were hearing so much of the cheeseburger song I don't know so would you say that that's like your favorite veggie tales memory uh probably the music for sure um and I I do remember there was like a Christian bookstore in my mall in my conservative little hometown and it was like one of the only bookstores and my brother and I would go and like put on the headphones and listen so <laughs> I think you're right I think that's exactly where we heard the song um but my dad in particular is connected to this because his name is Larry and um Larry the cucumber was a big deal in our house um and the oh where is my hairbrush song Yes. I think that's the right name of it. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, I will not sing it today, um, but I, I know that one very well. And my I think my dad still sings it to this day, like while brushing his hair. So songs were <laughs> instrumental, for lack of a better term. And, I think that's uh, the song that seems to stick in everybody's memory more than anything else. Yeah, I, I like to think I'm special because 
my dad is named Larry, Absolutely. but it's, it's clearly just the catchiest song that they have. <laughs> I don't know. I'm preferential to the um, I Love My Lips song, which is also Larry. It's a whole song about how much Larry loves his lips. So I don't, I don't even think he has lips, um, but I... Well, he I doesn't, but he loves them. So uh, <laughs> I, I recommend you go give that one a listen to. <laughs> I'm going to have to see if my dad still has this this cassette cassette or cd or whatever he's he hoards all of those he has all of those from my childhood um so i think uh i think there's like hercules cd somewhere next to it from like the disney's hercules that came out around the same time um so i'm gonna have to go find all of those amazing amazing (laughs) oh i love that i do think that the veggie tales music is something about it is specifically primed to sort of take on a life of its own within a family lore you know what I mean like there's some things that just because you hear it but then it becomes your family's own for one reason or another and sometimes you can't even remember the source of it or how you guys started using it but it becomes like a family meme in a way absolutely yeah yeah I did not remember the cheeseburger song when I heard it I did not immediately remember that it was veggie tales but then watching Mm. it you know as that like interlude in between the the storyline it's like Oh my gosh, that's where that's from. <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful experience uh, at 10, 10 o'clock this morning. To uh, so Casey, one of the things that we noted in last week's episode um, was that there were significantly fewer female characters in the show than there are male characters. So in theory, it's really great that today's episode is entirely about a female character. But then when we like looked at the story a little bit more, it feels... I don't know, kind of complicated how they portray her. Um, And so my first question for you is, do you think that this story could have been effectively communicated with a male protagonist? Um, Like, is Larry's materialism at the beginning of the episode different than Madame Blueberry's? Or is it the same? Or I don't know. What is (laughs) the vegetable's gender doing here? Yeah, there, there's a lot. And I think you can kind of come at this from different angles. If you're thinking just purely literary, you know, being accurate to the literary reference, then no, of course, it has to be a woman. Um, it has to be a female character. And in this case, it also has to be something that goes with Bovary, right? It has to be mm-hmm. Blueberry. Um, so there's that angle, <laughs> um, which also, you know, if we unpack the whole story behind Madame Bovary, you know, it, it's very stereotypical of women of the time, uh, you know, painted like the the main character in the book. And then also in this VeggieTales version is painted as very stereotypically naive female. Uh, she's convent educated. Uh, she reads lots of novels, which is scandalous. And it's where she gets her scandalous ideas. All of this obviously isn't shared in the, in the VeggieTales <laughs> version. But the grownups watching it, you know, kind of maybe if you're familiar with the story, get it. And then she's a farmer's daughter. Um, in the original story. So there's like so many various tropes there that I really feel like VeggieTales could have really picked up on given the fact that it's, you know, a religious kind of context and farming. Um, but they didn't dive into that. Uh, that's okay. But um, <laughs> Only so much you can do in a 20 is, minute <laughs> retelling with yeah. vegetables. Especially for children. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so there's, you know, if you, if you come at it from just that point of view, uh, you had to, to to fit that stereotype. You'd have to have the the female vegetable slash fruit. 
Um, and then historically speaking, consumer culture, which is what this is speaking about, uh, both in the literary sense and then in the, you know, kind of in the morality sense was very geared towards women. Uh, women had the purchasing power or the buying power. They might not have been making the money historically, but they were the ones exercising those purchases in the grocery stores and the department stores in the catalogs where you ordered things into your home. Everything for the home was was purchased by women, food, material goods, just like you see in the in the veggie tales show. Um, so yeah. Fascinating. This is interesting. I guess I I honestly never thought to like put this episode in sort of the context of the um of like Madame Madame Bovary. No, I think I, I think looking at the the literary uh, materials that it's brought from really speaks to how someone were would take the moral of that story. So you know thinking of the ve- the writers of Veggie Tales. Um, thinking, oh, this is a great story. It has great morals. It shows this. When in reality, it's really a very bad stereotype of women of the mm-hmm. era that still exists today in kind of different ways. So, so you know, it, it it's clear that that stereotype still holds for for some people because they take that as an example and then run with it for children. So. There's a yeah. lot to unpack there, you know? Um, yeah, so I guess my sort of question is, do we think that like this stereotype is being upheld in this episode or is the stereotype being challenged in a way in this episode? I think it's being upheld. Uh, you know, obviously they're not going into as much depth um, and hopefully the moral of the story of having less is like the main takeaway. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's ways kids can kind of push away the gendered stereotypes, but but it still gets through for a lot of folks. Uh, I think, I think you, you see, uh, well, let's go back to the beginning. You see Larry, uh, talking about all of the things that he wants and they're all very, um, what they're very, hold on. I'm going to go down to my notes. Sorry. Um, at the very core, both Larry's materialism and Madame Blueberry's materialism is the same. It's just has different causes and they're both still very problematic. And Larry's materialism at the beginning was fulfilled with incredibly stereotypical items of toxic masculine material <laughs> culture. This feels very weird to say about a cucumber. <laughs> Especially a cucumber with the same name as your dad. <laughs> um, these, these items are, you know, the things that we, you know, very stereotypically associate with men and men's purchasing power. Uh, oversized, fast vehicles, dirt bikes, jet skis. <laughs> Um, and you know, and then you, you pop to this story and she's talking about new plates and Mm -hmm. new silverware and toaster ovens and And a nose ring for your poodle and a nose ring for your poodle. There are some things that Madame Bovary slash Madame Blueberry definitely does not need. But when you, when you back up a bit and think about, oh, she's asking for plates that aren't cracked. Uh, Mm -hmm. she's asking for silverware that's not old, uh, you know, and you see these cracks in her home and you see these things that are kind of, you know, she's asking to make her space better that she, a space that she has to occupy. Yeah. Uh, so, and has and to things that give her home. the capacity to like be hospitable. They give her capacity to like Absolutely. welcome others into her home. Yeah. And, and, you know, all of these things were historically connected with domesticity and things that were marketed to women and uh, marketed to women in order to be good women, in order to be good homemakers at whatever whatever financial situation they are in whether that's madame bovary's original situation as a farmer's daughter to now she's technically an affluent woman of means um and that same kind of marketing language is still used today it's just very much uh 
kind of realigned to a different group of purchasing power, which is now more and more millennial aged women, um, women who grew up on veggie tales, maybe, <laughs> um, typically are m- more often single and then more often child free. So that's a different kind of purchasing power. They're purchasing different things, but it's still got the same old, same old gendered tropes. Yeah, I think that by eliminating, like they chose not to incorporate a Monsieur Blueberry in the story. And I think by doing that, they eliminated a lot of the more problematic questions that would have arisen. For example, what would that character would have been? Like sort of like just a lame duck guy sitting around, like not Mm. caring that her space didn't look great, not caring what she spent the money on. Madame Blueberry slash Bovary, she seems to have unlimited spending means in this retelling, but it's never really addressed or explained. Um, Money is kept as this like abstract thing. So I guess maybe they made that choice so that it would center less on this idea of, you know, a, a woman subsumed by her unlimited credit limit and instead just a woman, a person who happened to live alone, who happened to want things. Absolutely. And uh, again, thinking of like the literary side of this, uh, knowing that the the writers of the of the show uh, thought of this particular novel, which was scandalous in its own time frame because it had lots of adultery and <laughs> lots of affairs um, and and, you know, immoral kind of acts. And none of that is talked about, obviously, in the VeggieTales episode. <laughs> well, it's so but interesting it's to think of them, like, sitting around in the pitch room, like, okay, we want to st- tell a story about consumerism and gratefulness. And this is what comes to mind, a story about <laughs> lust. <Yeah. laughs> Morals, they all overlap. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for, for none of that to, to show through why she was so sad, <clears throat> excuse me, to show why she was so blue, as she sang. Uh, you know, all of those things inform why a woman like Madame Bovary would have acted the way she did. And, you know, she, she's clinically depressed, most likely, and she's using retail therapy, um, it, you know, in, in modern language is what we would say. Um, and then what I really appreciated, too, the dynamic between kind of the gendered vegetables was that at one point towards the end, she turns around and says that she she realizes she has good friends and she looks at her butlers <laughs> and the power <laughs> dynamic is just like left unaddressed. They're her butlers, but also her friends. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a very interesting, you know, I know they had to fit Larry and Bob in there somewhere, um, but it was just a very interesting choice. <laughs> so one thing I've been thinking about a lot, Casey, is the choice to portray her as a blueberry, which obviously it, you know, fits with the idea of Madame Bovary. Um, But that a blueberry is like quite short and quite squat. And she's the one who's unhappy in her life. Um, And then the other sort of female characters she interacts with are the, I believe they're green beans who are long and lean and poor, but very content with their life. And I don't know, I'm, did you like, I don't know, feel (laughs) frustrated with that depiction or what, can you help me break down what's going down there? I absolutely love that. I did not pick up on that at all. Um, I was thinking more, I want to talk about that, but I was thinking more that it was, you know, blueberries are more expensive. They're fancy. Oh, interesting. And long beans yeah. are cheap and come canned or frozen. And that's that's the takeaway that I took was, you know, you know, of course you have a canned green bean. So they're going to be, you know, that association with canned food being, 
you know, for poor people, for being yeah. a food of, you know, not necessarily the thing that you want. It's the thing that you just have on the shelf versus a fresh blueberry. That is the takeaway I took. Interesting. I absolutely love this additional like layer though of, I love, I love hate it is what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to be clear. Um, yeah. I did not think about that, but there, there is so much more to unpack there about the squat. And at one point the, the stuff mart is that the mm-hmm. name of the start? Yes. <laughs> Stuff Mart vegetables were singing to her um, and said something about like they were they were trying to like flatter her when they first did their salesman pitch and said something about the they were trying to say like the prettiest face or something, but they like paused and said the prettiest. They did like a something like that. They like they hesitated when they were flattering her, like about yes. her look. Yes. And it panned to a picture of her just being like, what? And I, I was trying to understand what they meant. I was just like, is it because she's a blueberry? <laughs> like, what? Blueberries are delicious. They're beautiful. I was very confused. That's why all of that went over. Yeah. My <laughs> but your point stands that, you know, they, they clearly were making a joke out of the fact that she's, I I think you're right, the shorter, yeah, the shorter water, spotter. Um, mm-hmm. Blue for some reason. <laughs> Um, what else is she supposed to be? Um, and you're right. The comparison with the long and lean beans being skinnier, being associated with happiness and things like that. There's a lot to unpack in this single episode. <laughs> there is. I mean, I think it is just fascinating. Like, I, I do think that they've done a brilliant job of building character um personalities through the choice of fruits and vegetables that they use to like portray different different characters. It really is amazing when you think about it, like how much can be portrayed in like the choice of fruit and vegetable that they use. Um, but yeah, it can also reinforce some harmful stereotypes. And that was kind of the the thing that stuck out to me in this one. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I would love to actually have a child's interpretation of this to see what they pick mm-hmm. up on. Um, it, you know, instead of having, not that they don't have the same hangups we do as grownups, of course, but they maybe don't have them in the same way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did your children they, stay awake through this episode? They did not. Uh, <laughs> they, the, I watched this episode by myself. I oh, wanted okay. to have full, full time by myself to watch it and enjoy it. Um, we turned on uh, Veggie Tales for them a few months ago, and they they like selected it on I think Netflix or wherever it was, and they immediately shut it down. <laughs> they were like, nope, not interested. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Uh, I don't know what made them. I'll have to ask them. Maybe you can ask. Well, them. how old are your kids, Casey? <laughs> they are six and three. Okay, so I have a five year old and a about to turn eight year old. Um, as of next week, he'll be eight and neither of them could stay awake through this episode. I mean, I put on last week, we watched where's God when I'm scared and they at least were interested in that in part, I think because it was their first experience with something that was bootlegged because the version we watched (laughs) (laughs) was on YouTube and and they were like, wow, why is it not the screen? Why can we see the windows of someone else's house in the background? So that like got them through the first 15 minutes. And then by the end, I think, I think my eight-year-old has the moral sensibility to question why would they use vegetables to tell me this story? Um, And I guess that kind of leads me into the question I had for you, Casey, which is 
you know, there's like a biblical gloss over this story at the end via the proverb they chose. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like this adaptation would be a healthy way for kids to learn about having a grateful heart? Like, did you feel like the takeaway was something good? I think, again, I was reading it with a very critical eye. Um, (laughs) I would love to get my kids' interpretations because my kids would suspend all belief. Like they would be fine with vegetables talking to them because we are very farm veggie food centered house. So I don't think that would be their problem. I don't know what their problem was. Um, I love at the end that the proverb was very clearly had, you know, capital he's um, and had like very clearly gendered proverb because it's from the Bible. Um, and uh, that cracked me up because they were like, well, Madam Blueberry sure figured herself out after, after learning that, after they just showed that proverb. <laughs> Um, and that made me giggle. Um, I think, I think definitely, I think kids would take away, you know, the thankful heart is a happy heart is like a great phrase. It's a phrase that, you know, they reiterate throughout the show. And I think interjecting the the little bits with the kids and like the birthday scene and the, the train scene where, you know, they're, they're like, well, we can't get that today. Those are exact conversations. I feel like we've all had with our children at some point. And so I think that would be something that resonates with them. Um, I think that would be something that resonates with them more than the Madame Bovary story. I wonder too, if, you know, like we, I think we've talked about this before, Kendall, is if these stories were meant, there's so much humor in VeggieTales that is very geared towards the grownups. If some of these literary tropes that they're interjecting too is, is a, a nod to the grownup. Yeah. Um, and, but then what does that mean? <laughs> Like, why are they, you know, I mean, I don't particularly spend a lot of time watching, you know, children's TV shows, but I would imagine that you all have them on at your house a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I would imagine like I enjoy watching these and I would imagine that you guys probably it's more enjoyable to watch this than some of the other stuff that's on in the background. So maybe I mean, I wonder if it's just purely that this idea of like, if we market a show also to the parent, it's more likely to get watched. Yeah, I think contemporary shows are still doing the same thing. And there's some really big hit shows that kind of have the same, there's a moral in there, you know, they're not necessarily religious, you know, focused, but there's that moral and there's those adult reference, uh, you know, grown up references, uh, sometimes literary, sometimes musical, sometimes cultural. And, and then it kind of caters to everybody and it sticks in our heads in different ways. And we each take different things from it. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's a great message for the kids, you know, and VeggieTales, I, I was not raised very religious, but VeggieTales was still a very integral part to my upbringing. And a, a lot of my peers too, who are also not religious, um, or in other religions, you know, they were Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, took very different things from this. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's a good effort. A for <laughs> effort. Well, you know, and that's so... I do find it really fascinating that it is sort of um, that it's like stuck in the memory of folks who also did not grow up religious. Um, So sort of when I started thinking about the idea of this podcast, I was with Casey and with a couple of other, um, you know, other other food studies friends who most of whom did not grow up religious and all of whom were familiar with veggie tales and sort of um, at least the songs like I think everyone was like, oh, the hairbrush song. We've got to talk about the hairbrush song. And so it is sort of this cultural phenomenon that is like clearly religious in background, um, but is also known among, you know, kids that grew up in that era that weren't religious. And I, I, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's, oh, sorry, Kate. Well, I was just, just going to say that 
I think based on where we are in the VeggieTales universe timeline, where we're straddling, it's July 1998, where this comes out. I think VeggieTales had at that point sort of conquered the conservative Christian Bible Belt demographic that they were chasing. And it seemed like they were starting to have this moment of like, okay, how do we take this wider? How do we capture <laughs> more of the possible demographic? And I think this Madam Blueberry moment might be where it made that crossover into households like yours, Casey, where it wasn't necessarily about the religion or the Bible verse or the Bible adaptation, but it was about having a morally strong, firm message that you could watch together with the family um, and not necessarily such like a biblical takeaway. Like it very much felt to me like they're experimenting with that here. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think thinking back on all the different shows that we grew up on as kids, um, you know, that are now either getting rebooted or finally making it to Netflix or, or you know, bootleg versions on YouTube. <laughs> um, you know, there's they all had things that would never pass muster on contemporary shows. Um, and, you know, it is really interesting to watch them not only as a grown up, but as a grown up in 2022, where the world is very, very different and in a, in a hopefully in a great way for most of us. Um, and it's it's just very interesting to see what what is included in a kid's show. And also, I every time I watch a VeggieTales or think of VeggieTales, I immediately also think, just because of the subject matter in the fact that they always added literary stuff. Um, and this is where I'm thinking your point is absolutely correct, Kate, in the timeline. Um, I always associate VeggieTales with Wishbone. And- oh, interesting which was all literary, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I don't, I think the timelines cross over there. Like, I think they match up pretty well. And so in my brain, which is also has, you know, literary stuff, less morally, but there's still kind of like a happy ending message at the end and um, like a takeaway, a summary of that. And so, you know, maybe you're right. Like, I think that they realized this other show was also gaining a lot of traction and a way to kind of get into other homes. Wow, I wouldn't have know. thought of that. Like, it's very possible that they were like, well, what this wishbone dog is doing is taking <laughs> off. You know, why can't yeah. we, if the dog can be, you know, a Dickens character, then surely the blueberry. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And they just went, they just went for it for their first literary episode. Uh, if this, if that's what happened, they just were like, let's go high. Let's go Madame Bovary. Let's do it. Or maybe no they just know. hired like a, like, um, maybe they just had like an English studies intern that year. <laughs> <laughs> a PhD student, you know. Yeah. I mean? yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. This was, this was a delightful reintroduction to VeggieTales personally. Um, I, I loved it and I think I might have to watch more. <laughs> Yes. Good, 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 good. Well, thank you so much for being here with us, Casey. It has been a delight to talk with you. And I hope that all of our listeners find it very delightful as well. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you, Casey. Hey, real quick before we break this episode, if you're listening to Veggie Takes, chances are you might also be trying to figure out how to teach the Bible to your children in a fun, engaging way. I've got the perfect tool for you. Bake with the Bible is a six-week study on bread and the Gospels. Each week includes a scriptural lesson and a cultural historical lesson, plus a family-friendly recipe, activities for a range of ages and learning styles, and reading recommendations, too. Bake with the Bible is perfect for use around the breakfast table with your kids this summer. We've also got a self-guided version for teens and adults, complete with reflection prompts and journaling pages. 
the whole family will enjoy journeying through the Gospels through the lens of bread. Buy your copy today at www.edibletheology.com. And guess what? Veggie Takes listeners get 15% off any home version of Bake with the Bible when you use code VEGGIETAKES at checkout. Again, that's www.edibletheology.com. We'll link it for you in the show notes, too. All right, Kate, how would you rank this episode? This is a tough one because my kids fell asleep during it, which makes me inclined to only give it four tomatoes. At the same time, I enjoyed it and felt convicted by it and felt that perhaps a literary adaptation was less problematic than a Bible story adaptation. So I'm going to give it four and a half tomatoes. Nice, nice. I, you? you know, I think I'm going to give it a solid four tomatoes. Um, mostly just for, again, the depictions of women <laughs> and body size and how body size and shape um, impact the way they, you know, display like contentedness with life. Um, it's a really subliminal message that you know, is pretty common, but um, it's definitely something I picked up on. And um, yeah, that's kind of the only thing. That's the only thing detracting a point for me. I'll be honest, Kate, I'm trying to be way more critical of these episodes, but for the most part, they're holding up a lot better than I anticipated. So my, my yeah, rankings are much been, higher tomato wise than I anticipated. Uh, there hasn't been anything so far yet that I've had to be like, wow, bad, you know, rank it rotten instead of fresh. Yeah, yeah. Well, that could change. I don't know. We'll see. Well, thank you to everyone who tuned in to this episode of Veggie Takes. We just want you to remember, like Bob and Larry always say, God thinks you're special and he loves you very much. See you next week. Veggie Takes is an unofficial podcast of the Edible Theology Project. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also enjoy Edible Theology's official podcast, Kitchen Meditations, 20-minute meditations to accompany as you cook. Kitchen Meditations is available wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to everyone who made this podcast possible. My co-host, Kate Watson, and our guest, Katherine Highsmith, and our wonderful worship CCN scholar, Adam Perez. (laughs) 